All right, let's turn to our scripture. It can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is Matthew 2, 1 through 12, appropriately titled, We Three Kings. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and had come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it, so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had, had they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the child, the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word of the Lord. Well, we are looking at the hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are which was a Christmas carol written in 1857 by John Henry Hopkins while serving as pastor of Christ Episcopal Church in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Interesting fact, Hopkins wrote both the lyrics and music to We Three Kings, which is very uncommon, uh, was very uncommon for hymn writers of the day. He wrote uh, We Three Kings for a Christmas pageant held at General Theological Seminary in New York City, where he taught music. We Three Kings was the first Christmas carol that originated from the United States to achieve a worldwide uh, uh, widespread popularity. And as you know, his original composition consisted of five verses. The first and the last verse were written for three kings to sing together, and the remaining verses were written as a solo for each king bearing their gift. The names of the kings passed through tradition are Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. And the kings presented the Christ child with three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. For this reason, it is believed there were three wise men, or kings of Orient, to journey to see the Christ child. But we must ask the question, what are these kings coming to do? Why have they made this tumultuous journey? The answer is in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men came from the east, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have saw his, we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. There is a longing deep inside all of us to give ourselves to someone or to something greater than ourselves. It manifests itself in different ways whether it's the rabid sports fan or the girl who idolizes the boy or when we fantasize about a product thinking that if we just had it, all would be well with the world. 
You've felt it in yourself, I'm sure. Because it's been placed there by God. And it is called worship. There's a deep need in our hearts to worship something. To place it on a pedestal. To give our hearts to it. To bow down to it. And there are great, there is great harm when we worship things that are not worthy of our hearts. What's wrong with the world is that mankind is worshiping the wrong thing. Indeed, much of the pain in your life can be found in worshiping things that are not worthy of your heart. But there is great joy when one finds the proper object of worship. And the Bible tells us there is only one who is worthy of our heart's worship. And so this passage in this sermon is all about worship. The wise men who seek out and find the proper object of their affections. But there are others in this story, Herod and the chief priests and the scribes, who do not. This passage should challenge us and make us ask the question, who are we seeking to worship this Christmas? And how far will we go in order to do so? We're going to look at three points. Number one, who is it that we should worship this Christmas? Number two, why we should worship him. And finally, number three, how we should worship him. So let's dig in with point number one. Who should we worship? We see in verse one, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. This wise men translated as magi. From where we get the word, it's the derivative of the word magic. They were astrologers from the court king, uh, from the king, from the court of the king of Persia. And they were astronomers and astrologers. They combined astrological speculation with astronomical study. They were highly regarded in Persia, indeed around the world for their wisdom. And when you think about it, they were the last people that you would think of to come and worship Jesus Christ. First of all, they were separated by geography. They were about 800 miles away from Bethlehem. Secondly, they were separated by religion. Indeed, they practiced divination, which is something that was outlawed in the Old Testament. Finally, they were Gentiles. They were considered unclean. They did not have access to the inner temple courts. They were the last people that one would expect to come, and yet they came. And these wise men have come with the express purpose of worshiping Jesus. They said, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. But they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's important that we understand that when they're talking about king of the Jews, they're not talking about an ordinary king, an earthly king. They understood that this was a king that was greater than any other king. Notice how Herod responds after hearing their inquiry. Herod assembles all the chief priests and scribes and inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. See, the Magi saw him as God's anointed king, as a king over all kings, and they came prepared to worship. And when they saw Jesus, they fell down and worshiped him and opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. How were they alerted, being at such a great distance, that Jesus had been born? 
It was a supernatural sign, a star. Perhaps they knew the scriptures, Numbers 24, 17, that said, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. Now, it's very interesting. The Bible always has a purpose, and God is trying to tell us something with these three kings coming from afar. In the book of Matthew, it starts with the genealogy, and then pretty much right after, it begins with the story of the kings. And it ends, of course, with the Great Commission. All authority in heaven on earth, Jesus says, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What the Bible is trying to communicate to us is that Jesus' birth is for all the world. It's for everyone. Isaiah 63, which we just read, uh, which was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, says this. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. All those from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Isn't that amazing that 700 years before, the Bible was foretelling that those would come and bring gold and frankincense to the feet of Jesus Christ? See, Jesus is for the world, and all the world will come and see. He's not just for the Jews. And Jesus' purpose is to be Lord over all of the earth. Hear the words from Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the nations wait for his law. Jesus has come into the world to rule the world. Indeed, first to redeem the world by dying on a cross and ransoming it through his blood. So the conclusion we can draw is that Jesus is the rightful king that made the world and announces to the world that he has been born. We were made in the image of Jesus Christ. The great Saint Augustine said, we were made for him. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And so Jesus begins to exert a gravitational pull from people of every tongue, language, and tribe with his birth. But Jesus is troubling to the people who do not want to worship him. See, there are other actors in this story. Notice them. Verse 3, Herod being the first. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. This word trouble means to be in turmoil, terrified, or greatly agitated. See, there are two types of people who do not want to worship Jesus. First, there's those who regard him as non-important. These would be the chief priests and the scribes. Notice what Herod does. He calls together the chief priests and the scribes and assembles them and inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. Yet notice what the chief priests and scribes do not do. They do not head to Bethlehem, which is about six miles away from Jerusalem. They're not impacted by the fact that the Christ has been born, that these people have come from afar, that a star has appeared in the sky. Did they not see the star? It appears that they weren't looking. 
You see, they worship their position, not the Savior. And a baby was not a threat to them. Compare and contrast that with the Magi that traveled great distance and, and through great danger in order to worship the Christ. There were those who regarded him as non-important, and there were those who regarded him as a threat. This being Herod. Notice the question that Herod asks. He asked where this one was to be born, but he didn't ask who this one was to be. If he had asked who, if he had inquired about this particular person, perhaps they would have shared Micah 5.2 that says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you sh from you shall come forth of me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus is bigger than all kings, than all lords. But Herod only cares about one thing, his power and his turf. And so he schemes and he lies and ultimately commits murder. So what is the result of these different parties? The wise men seek and find and rejoice with great joy because they found the proper object of their affection. But Herod and the wise men, excuse me, Herod and the uh, chief priests are increasingly mm -hmm. paranoid and frustrated. I brought along with me uh, my handy toolbox here, little toolbox. This is where I keep my bolts and my nuts. Uh, I keep this with me at all times, just in case I have to. And, you know, one of the things about them is whenever you find a, uh, you know, a bolt, you're always trying to find a proper nut to fit it, right? And so you start going through, and there are some that are too big. There are some that are too small. And you're looking for that exact right fit. Because one was meant for the other. And when you find it, you can tell because it just slides on correctly, as this one does right here. You see handy show and tell in church. In the same way, we are looking for the proper object of our affection. The wise men were looking, and they searched far and wide, and when they found it, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, for they had found the proper object of their worship. But Herod and the Magi and, and the uh, scribes did not. See, Jesus is the right object of worship for all of us, because we were made in the image of God. We have a choice. We can be like the wise men, to seek and find and rejoice and worship. Or we can be like the others. We can see him as not important, that he doesn't affect me, that I'm too busy with Christmas. But if we do not find the right source of our affection, our lives will ultimately end in frustration and sorrow. Because worship is not an option. It's not a question of if I'm going to worship. It's a question of who I am going to worship. So you and I must acknowledge that I am a worshiper. We must seek and find out the proper one who is to be worshipped. 
for his name is Jesus Christ. Seek and find him. Be dissatisfied with anything less. For we were made to worship one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ. So let's bring him our best. Bring me to point number two, why we should worship him. I think this story is amazing because God wields the universe in order to make his son known and worshipped. Isn't it amazing in verse 2 where they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It is as if God has put a planetary body in motion in the heavens in order to point directly to his son. Jesus Christ. Jesus is a king unlike any other king. Many kings have been born throughout Earth's history, but none have had a star appear pointing directly to Christ. And the Magi somehow knew. Perhaps they knew Isaiah 63, a nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Well, what do we know about this star? We know that the star appears in the sky, that it wasn't there before or in a way that they could see it. They called it his star. And this star led them to Jerusalem. Now, they're about 800 miles away, and there are plenty of stars in the sky, and yet this star somehow alights over Jerusalem so they know exactly to go there and are following a day after day after day. But this star, when it comes to Jerusalem, it stops. Indeed, we know it stopped because when they got to Jerusalem, they had to inquire where the Christ was to be born. And they hear it's Bethlehem, but we see that it goes before them. Verse 9, the star moves, it stops, and it starts again. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. The star literally comes down some way, somehow, into the atmosphere and directs them directly to the specific house they knew where to go. When they saw it, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. If it was way up in the sky, there's no way they would know. Somehow this star literally rested right over this house. So think a little bit about this. Birmingham, Alabama is about 800 miles away from here. And let's say God was calling you to meet someone you never met before and was going to direct you to Birmingham, Alabama. And you were going to walk 20 miles a day for 40 days, and this star was going to be so specific, so precise, that it was going to lead you to a specific house in a specific subdivision in Birmingham, Alabama, where you would go and you would find the person that you were looking for. What are the odds that the star is going to lead you to that house? The odds are zero. It's impossible, save for a supernatural, act of God. And keep in mind also before that, that God caused a census, Caesar to conduct a census that moved millions of people so that 
uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus would be in that specific house at that specific time. What does this mean? It means that God wants his son to be worshipped. If God led the wise men, is not God capable of leading you as well? Look back on your life, and you will see that God is organizing it to put you right here at this time, because he wants his son to be found. Are you fighting creation? Are you saying it's just a coincidence? Jesus is just one of many religious figures. But that's not true. Jesus is the only one who was virgin born. Jesus is the only one of the major religious figures who claimed to be God himself. He's the only one who died and rose again. He's the only one that time is dated after. He is Jesus. And so we must search for him like the wise men. We must leave the comfort of our comfortable place and search with all of our hearts because the Bible is very clear. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened. Christ is alive just as he was then and is to be encountered by faith. We should worship him because he is the king. We were made to worship one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ. So let's bring him our best. Brings me to my final point, how we should worship. When the wise men got to the house and they saw the child with Mary and his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. What exactly is worship? Here's a good definition. Worshiping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with sacrificial gifts. There are four ways in which they worship Jesus Christ. Number one, they name him. Who is this one called King of the Jews or King of Kings? They name him with their voice. In the same way, we have opportunity to name him with our mouths, to praise him as we have been doing in this service. The Bible in Hebrews 13 says, let us joyfully offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, a hymn of those who confess his name. We can do that anytime, anywhere. In the comfort of our home, in the privacy of our car, we can name the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What is the name that you use for him? Great teacher or my Savior and my Lord? Number one, they name him. Number two, they fall before him. Keep in mind, these are wise men from the court of Persia. They've seen the opulence of the king. And yet they're in this simple house when they come to see Jesus Christ. And they fall before him. See, they're communicating that you are great and we are small. We can do this as well. We can kneel before Jesus Christ in the privacy of our homes, 
wherever God calls us to. We can communicate by with our bodies what we think of Jesus Christ. They named him. They fell before him. They rejoiced, number three. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's actually quadruple joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why did they rejoice exceedingly with great joy? Because they were on their way. See, true worship is not just ascribing authority and dignity to Christ. It's doing it joyfully. Because God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Has your worship gone cold? Use this Christmas to light the fires again. To remember who he is. To remember what he's done. And to worship him. Finally, they gave sacrificial gifts. The gift of gold was considered worthy of a king. The buildings and treasures of the kings and pharaohs from the ancient past have left reminders that gold was the prize of rulers and kings. They gave frankincense, which comes from the frankincense tree. It's a resin. And it was greatly valued throughout the Middle East from Rome to India. It was very expensive and has a wonderful fragrance. And finally, they gave him myrrh. Though less expensive than frankincense, it was still highly valued. We all know that myrrh was used for embalming and entombing. And it communicates and foreshadows the reality that we have a king who is not a removed king, only high and mighty, but one who is lowly, one who is coming to the earth to sacrifice to die in our place. He's worthy of all of our worship and he's worthy of all of our love because he died for you and me. He's a sacrificial king. See, when we worship, when we give, we're communicating tangibly on the outside what is going on on the inside. We communicate that I have come to you, Jesus, not just for your things, but for yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things in the hope of enjoying you more and more, not things. So an opportunity to worship this, this Christmas is to give of ourselves. And one of the ways that we can do that is to love others. We can love others this Christmas. I'm reminded of Matthew 25 that says when Jesus is speaking, to his disciples, when he's speaking to those who go to heaven, he says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Do you want to find Christ this Christmas? You'll find him in the poor. You'll find him in the lonely. You'll find him in the sad and the forgotten. That is who his star is resting over. 
Let's make a decision, all of us, to give him our best this Christmas. And the way we love one another, and the way we love the least and the lost, and the way we love him. For we were made to worship one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ. So let's bring him our best. And by God's grace, we will do so. Let's pray. God, all of creation points to you, to worship you, for you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This Christmas, let us seek out your face. Let us desire to come and let us name the name, fall down in worship and present you with gifts that are sacrificial in the way that we love others, in the way that we give our time, our talents, and our treasures that we might communicate that you are the one that we want. And we are so glad that you have come into the world. For you are the rightful king, and you are worthy of all of our worship. We pray for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.